This episode of the Braving Business Podcast is sponsored by, well, me. I'm PJ Benoit, and I've been in the domestic and international logistics space for over 30 years. If you need any assistance with transportation or logistics, my team and I will jump at the chance to help. Whether it be parcel shipments, e-commerce, pallets and freight, full truckload, international air and ocean, imports, exports, warehousing and distribution, or really anything under the logistics umbrella, we got you covered. For more details, please go to shipwithpj.com. That's shipwithpj.com. Reach out to me there. Mention you found me on this podcast for a special surprise. And one last quick thing. If you enjoyed this episode, please stay on after the show to learn more about the Braving Business Podcast and other great episodes for you to discover. And now, let's get the show started. Why, hello there. Sir, how goes it? It goes splendidly. How are you, my friend? I am uh, I'm okay. It's a little windy in Tampa Bay today, so I'm uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to 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 deal with the fact that it's not a perfect sunny day as uh as I'm accustomed to being a resident of the sunniest place on earth. Batten down the hatches, my friend. I'm sorry. I'm sorry you're facing the wind. Here in Chicago, it's a it's a rather tepid 33 degrees right now. So yeah, but, uh, 33, that's, that's pretty warm for Chicago. It is. What, it is. Uh, is, is it, what temperature is it like, you know, get a really, you know, hot beverage, uh, moment, temperature for you. Like when do we, when do we start busting out hot chocolate actually? And you know what? Hot today, chocolate, apple cider. I don't know. Today, yeah. our, our esteemed guest is Larry. Larry, let us know that today is world hot chocolate day. Thank you, Larry. Or hot cocoa, I believe. Larry. Is it, is it already a wealth of information? You already are a wealth of information. That's amazing. <laughs> I'm wondering, I mean, if there is a hot cocoa day, is there also like hot apple cider day? I mean, who determines these things? People smarter than me. I don't know. But we can make mm. them. We can. Let's let's make a, a, you know, national marshmallow day. I'm sure there is one. Wouldn't be surprised. There has to be one. It's probably tomorrow, right, right after hot cocoa day, I would think. <laughs> okay. In fact, well, you know what? That I, reminds you of. That Go I was going to tell you, there is in Chicago. We just heard a story. There is um, in one of the suburbs. There were two girls, sisters, who started a hot cocoa stand, like a lemonade stand, but during the winter, and they've been doing it now for like twenty something years. And every uh, every donation they get, they give to Toys for Tots program, which is through the uh, United States Marines. They give all of it. Yeah, a hundred percent. So last wow. year, Great. they gave over forty eight thousand dollars. Uh, You're kidding. How old are these girls? Well, now they're, uh, I think they're like in their mid twenties. They started when they were two and four and, but they've been doing it every wow. year and every proceed goes. Not nice. That's very nice. That's pretty cool. That's there's there's lovely people. Me. Out there. I, I, I mean, I would have been generous and given, you know, 50%, but hundred percent. That's 100%. Uh, good for them. I yeah. mean, they're, they're clearly kinder people than me. <laughs> Happy holidays. Well, happy holidays. Happy holidays. Well, let's get Larry in because yeah, Larry's the man. Larry's actually, he's a giant. He's a paragon. He is. Uh, he's so big, he barely fits on the screen. That, that's true. And I know a lot about not being able to fit on the screen. So there he goes. There Larry, he goes. No, nope, awesome. we will not. No, we will not let you do that. Take it back. <laughs> Take it back. Today, we are thrilled to welcome Mr. Larry Kazanoff to the show. Larry is a distinguished film producer of a couple, 
I don't know if you've ever heard of these hits. Are they hits? They're probably hits. You might have heard of movies like Terminator 2, Judgment Day, Platoon, True Lies, Dirty Dancing, and the whole Mortal Kombat series. Larry's Larry, the man behind all of those. Larry's talents extends beyond the live action genre, having produced animated Why, why does it need to? I mean, is that not enough? I mean, Larry, can't you just settle for being awesome at that? Why must you also take never, other things? Never enough. Never enough. Man, that's, a, that sounds like a great headline for another movie. Never enough. Yeah. The next Larry yeah, Kazanoff yeah. hit. There you go. I love it. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, can you cast us as uh, lead actors? I'll credit, I'll, yes. I'll credit you guys as co-creators. Oh, that's perfect. That. Man, I'll, I'll do it. Does that entitle us to any, any residuals? <laughs> Or no, just, nothing whatsoever. No, nothing like that. Okay, that's, all right. Well, then good. good. We're going to use one of your quotes on our shirts uh, and you get Welcome to Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah, really. Exactly. <laughs> so Larry's talents well beyond the live action genre. He's uh, he has produced animated movies such as Lego Star Wars, which my kids have loved and captivating theme park rides like Marvel superheroes 4D and the amazing adventures of Spider-Man. Currently the chairman of Threshold Entertainment, Larry received, or, or sorry, Larry recently published a book called A Touch of the Madness, How to Be More Innovative in Work and Life by Being a Little Crazy. In the book, which you can find everywhere, including, of course, Amazon, Larry shares stories and lessons from his time in the movie industry and explains why he thinks that taking significant risks and embracing what we call our crazy side is the key to unlocking innovative potential and living out our dreams without restraint. I can't wait to understand how crazy he really is talking about because if crazy is, you know, the bar to pass, I should be a superstar by now. So, <laughs> so we'll, we'll find out. We'll dig into this one. Larry Kazanoff, it is a privilege and an honor to have you with us on the Braving Business Podcast. Well, thanks, guys. It's great to be here, and I'm and I'm glad you're an embracer of the madness. Oh, yeah. I, I have no choice, sir. It's it's with me every day. <laughs> okay, it is. I I can attest to that as I spend a lot of time <laughs> in this company. And uh, yeah, madness is not an issue. No, uh, no. Accessing it, you know. Um, but Larry, uh, first of all, thanks again for uh, for being our guest today. We're really uh, honored to have you with us and uh, and to share with our audience some of the stories about both the wonderful things you've accomplished and what you mean by crazy. Uh, but let's start from the beginning, uh, from your days in grammar school, um, you all the way to becoming the movie producer that you are today with the, with the, uh, accomplishments that you've, uh, that you have uh, to your name. Talk to us about what moments in, in your early life, uh, propelled you from dreaming about, you know, doing some of what you've ended up doing to actually doing it. When I was a little kid, my father took me to see a James Bond movie and I left the movie and I said, first of all, I want to be James Bond. But second of all, what's that guy who says, you know, produced by Cubby Broccoli Presents? What does he do? And my father explained what a movie producer does. And that was it. I said, I'm going to be a movie producer. And I was a really little kid. I had great parents, incredibly supportive, but they weren't rich and no connections. We grew up in Boston. So I thought, how the hell am I going to get out of here to do this? So I made a plan. I was in grammar school. And in Boston, there's a school called Boston Latin School, which is the oldest high school in the country. Benjamin Franklin went there. Wow. But if you take a test and you're on the test, you can go for free. And it, it had in those days the highest um, percentage of getting kids into Ivy League schools of any high school in the country. So I got in and it was like going to school in the 1800s. I mean, it was terrible. But 
I thought I'm, I'm, this will get me to school. Did they beat and you with I, rulers? I mean, what, what do you mean by that? Where, Close. I mean, it, it was like, it was all, it was, it was all boys at the time I was there. When you, when you, the, the first day, you know, this 98 year old headmaster dawdles out in the auditorium and you're like in seventh grade and he, and he says something in Latin and translated to say, look to your left and look to your right. In six years, one of those people won't be here. Welcome to Boston Latin School. So that was it. But I, I didn't care because did I'm, he mean literally? I figured, like, I mean, did he mean not at the school? I mean, yeah. hopefully, presumably, you wouldn't still be at the school. So he didn't kill him. Okay. <laughs> but, what, what did he but, mean? But they, <laughs> he meant that the school was tough, and half the half gotcha. the class didn't. So they had they dropped out, and but through that, I um I did get into a good college, and I did get into a good grad school, and I just took every internship I could get, and. Um, and, it, and the plan worked. And I got an internship at HBO in grad school. And from that internship, I got a job as head of production and acquisition of a new independent film studio in the mid 80s called Vestron. And in those days, in the 80s, it was a content gold rush, I call it, like what we have today in streaming, where home video became huge. And all these stores popped up and they needed movies to fill their shelves. And therefore, there was a gold rush. So my job was to make 80 movies a year, eight zero. And my instructions were buy them, make them, co-produce them. We don't care how you get them. Don't lose money. And they were pretty low budget movies. And so I made, we made, you know, low budget rom-coms and, and horror movies and kind of action movies with B stars. But then I got a script for a movie called Platoon. And Platoon script was a very different movie. It was a very serious movie about the Vietnam War and the effect it had on kids. Uh, the tagline was the first casualty of war is innocence. The director had done a few, we had done an earlier movie with him, which I thought was great, but didn't make a lot of money. The people in the movie became stars, but they weren't stars. In short, this was not the kind of movie we were making, but I wanted to make it. So I went to my boss who owned the company, great entrepreneur, and I argued for it. And he said, hey, listen, you're the head of production now. It's your decision. But there's always a but. If the movie fails, you're fired. And he fired people all the time. It was not an idle threat. What do you want to do? And I thought, oh, how do I risk this job? And then I thought I didn't get into the movie business to play it safe. So I greenlit Platoon. I'm the only person who, when they saw the first screening of Platoon, giggled his entire way through it. Not because it was bad, because it was so good. I was like, oh my God, I'm not getting fired. I'm not getting fired. And it was so good. It actually won Best Picture at the Academy Awards that year. And a few that. months later, I was in a bar in New York, and I ran into the director, and he bought me a drink. And he said, you know, I always like you, kid. You have a touch of the madness. And I thought, a touch of the madness? Is he saying I'm crazy? Am I crazy? And then I thought, well, you know, my boss was kind of crazy to let a 25-year-old kid run an 80-picture film slate with no prior experience. Oliver, the director, had a touch of the madness by insisting that he was going to make a Vietnam movie in the way that no one ever did, thinking it wouldn't, you know, whatever time it wouldn't work. And I had a touch of the madness by betting the best job in the world wrote on one movie. And that's what it occurred to me, that that phrase was everything. That in order to be great and be different, you have to embrace your madness. You have to embrace the crazy side because everyone told me I was crazy to make that bet on Platoon. And so why is that important? It's important because the current of the river of life will always pull you towards the middle. It will always try and tell you, don't take chances, don't risk it, don't do it. It's imperceptibly in the background of everybody. And if you want to be great in whatever business you're in, movies, podcasting, radio, real estate, cement mixing, You've got to innovate because the audience wants the new and the different. They don't want the try and the true. And the best way to swim against that current is with a touch of the madness, meaning embrace your crazy ideas, green light your platoon, whatever it is. And that has been my touchstone of everything I've done ever since. It's what I do now. As I said, you just said you have a touch of the madness. I can see it in you. I think you do. And, <laughs> and that's what I look for. And I wrote the book because in the last few years, I found that that 
willingness, not just in the movie business, to kind of really go for your unbridled creative passion, I think it's diminished a ton. I have come to so many people who say to me, well, I want to be a baker. I want to do this, but I don't know. What if it's wrong? What if I get canceled? So anyway, that's, that's, uh, that's what I did. That's amazing. That's, that's really amazing. I, when I'm assuming you're, you're talking about Oliver Stone, right? For the director. Yeah. Yeah. That little guy. I mean, yeah. so let me, let me get this straight. Oliver Stone was, and I don't remember this. It's been a long time, right? Platoon was shot a long time ago. So Oliver Stone was not a household name yet at that point. I mean, he became a household name. I think it, out I of think, Platoon. Yeah. I think Platoon. Platoon. Wow. We, I did not remember done, that. That's incredible. We, we had co-financed the movie he directed called Salvador about, um, about photojournalists, which I thought was a brilliant movie with um i think chris um who was in the movie i don't remember but but um i thought it was brilliant i i, I just thought it was great. i still think he's great i've done a lot of other stuff with him and i think he's genius but th- that's the movie that really propelled him he wrote some great movies he wrote midnight express but as a director it was platoon that propelled him into the stratosphere we just yeah, recently with great directors about I, I believe true lies was james cameron right i mean it, you've you've really had yeah. the opportunity to work with some of the very very best yeah cool. great directors yeah, yeah. wow yeah. that's very very cool so you know you've 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 hit amazing success with Platoon, right? And Dirty Dancing, of course, was ginormous. Um, how do you? What do you attribute to your track record of success? Is is it a Midas touch kind of thing? Is it something where you just you have the knack to see it come to life? You know, in the script, and you're like, "Yep, that's going to be a hit," or "That's not going to be a hit." What? Or or did you have a bunch of duds? You know, through your process, of course. You know, if you come on a show like this, like, oh, and then we just went from platoon to dirty dancing to Mortal Kombat. It doesn't quite work like that. But no, the, 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 there's there's two things, and not to be redundant, but I attribute a touch of the madness because I think I have been and continue to be willing to take risks and willing to do things where people tell me I'm crazy all the time, including you know yesterday, literally. And I say I'm going to do it, and and I and then once you say that. You have to stick with it mm. and you have to not let that idea go. So you mentioned Dirty Dancing. When we got involved in Dirty Dancing, it was a movie and turnaround from another studio, meaning another studio had started and then shelved it. And it wasn't going well. And the, and and we managed, uh, the, our, our, our studio managed to lure in two kind of geniuses in the musical and film business, Michael Lloyd and Jimmy Einer, to oversee Dirty Dancing. And one of the first things they did was got a hold of the song Time of My Life, which was originally recorded as a high falsetto disco song, not the song you hear. And Jimmy re-recorded the song with Bill Medley of the Righteous Brothers into a lower, you know, slower, deeper ballad and sent out the new recording to everybody, the, the managers, the, the directors and so forth. And no one liked it. Everyone hated it, in fact, and sent Jimmy and Michael notes saying, please change this, please change that. You got to change it. We don't like the new version. And they were really gracious. And they said, no problem. Of course, we'll change everything. Just give us a little time. Three weeks later, they sent out version two with a note. They said, listen, we sent version two to some radio stations. In those days, radio stations really help you promote albums. And they seemed to really like it. Look forward to your thoughts. And everyone loved version two. They said, thank you so much. Thanks for being so open. Thanks for making the changes. So the question is, what did they change? And the answer of the genius musical change they made from version one to version two was nothing. They didn't change a thing. They just wrote the label differently. It's version two because they knew what they had and they doubled down on it because they even told radio stations. If the radio stations didn't like it, they would have been screwed because mm. that's the public. So in the midst of everyone telling them you have to do this and everyone and them saying, we'll do it. And they just sent out the same version. And that song won Grammy and an Academy Award that year. 
because they stuck to the idea. So those are really the two things. You have to have a touch of the madness and be willing to take that shot. But once you do, you got to hold on and never, ever, ever give up or let go. So so let's dive into what we mean by touch of the madness or crazy, right? Uh, you know, you, you talked, including in your book, about embracing your crazy side, quote unquote, to unlock innovation. I, I, I want you to define crazy because, you know, there is a fine line <laughs> between being bold and being reckless. Foolhardy. Um, sure. How do you define it? I mean, how do you how do you identify what represents just bold or maybe eccentric and this is just stone cold. Uh, I, I have, yeah, it's a great question. I have a whole long uh, chapter in the book, which is a touch of the madness versus a ton of the madness. Because you you, know, <laughs> you want a touch of the madness, but you don't want a ton of the madness. So I give a lot of examples of, is, was this a touch or was this a ton? And so I think everyone has their own line on it, on, on, on where that is. And I'm not encouraging people to just go be, you know, absolutely over the top nuts and run screaming through the streets. I'm encouraging them to embrace the side of them where it's always been defined in my life, everyone's saying, you're crazy, that'll never work. It's that idea in the back of your mind that almost seems too unbelievable, too unfathomable to work, and something is preventing you from doing it, fear, worry, insecurity. And I'm encouraging people to, to use to, to use crazy and madness to say, well, get over that. I, mean, I don't know what propelled you guys to start a podcast, but you weren't born that with this podcaster, so something propelled you guys to, to, to do that. And that's what I'm encouraging people to do. And that line about, is it too much or not, that's a tough line to walk. And you have to, first of all, you have to do is comfortable yourself. So if someone doesn't want to do this, and by the way, not, not everyone wants to innovate. Maybe you don't want to innovate. Maybe you like living life in the middle. That's okay. Your your business and you won't be great, but Generally, I think- our, our audience, given that our audience are predominantly made up of entrepreneurs and, and leaders and people aspiring to be entrepreneurs and leaders, they are predominantly people who do want to innovate. So I, I think- I think where you're going with identifying, if you will, you're crazy um, is is very applicable to this audience. And I, I, I'm hoping we can help the audience identify as best as possible. And I think you're doing that. And I think the chapter in the book is probably where they need to go if they want to understand it more thoroughly. That fine line between you're just nuts, you're just being reckless. And no, you're just committed, passionate, and willing to take a bold risk. Well- so here, here's how I define it. So in order to do that, and the book is just fun stories. There's no charts, there's no graphs, but I have three steps. Create, ask, play, cap. And and create means, so you have to have your idea. And the first thing you need for an idea is, is you have to understand the essence of your idea. When I started to, I bet my career to make Mortal Kombat, there had never been a hit movie from a video game. Again, everyone told me I was crazy. But the secret is I didn't think I was making a movie from a video game. I thought I was making a movie from the essence of what made that video game successful. And I believe the essence of that was empowerment. I, in my mind, Mortal Kombat work because of empowerment. So that's the essence. So the top of the pyramid of that intellectual property pyramid is not the video game, it's empowerment. The first one down one side of it is a video game. And then down another side is a movie and down another side is a TV show. So the first thing you have to do is figure out the essence of your idea. So now you're not just doing something willy nilly. You have, you have an idea and you think this is why this is going to work. You know, Starbucks didn't work because the coffee was good. It worked because America didn't have a place to gather like that. So that was the essence of, of that idea. And then once you have that idea, you have to hold on like crazy, which is the dirty dancing example I just gave. The second thing is ask. Ask, 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 ask. Ask anybody, anything, anywhere. So if I were to ask you guys and your audience right now, if you could call anyone in the world today who's alive and ask them a question, who would you call and what would you ask them? 
That's most people. What, go ahead. No, no, no. I was going. I was going to say that. I mean, that's. I think that's an excellent question, right? You're you're making people think right. about who can be not only mentors but influencers and and sounding boards to whatever they're working on. Whatever their question is, but but what, the way you just answered it is the way everyone answers it, which is well, good question. But people don't have it in the tip of their on the on the tip of their tongues because they were not brought up to think we can do that. But we can. During the pandemic, we made an animated movie with um, Cher, you know, the famous Cher called Bobbleheads with Universal. And Cher had never done an animated movie. So everyone said she's never going to do it. But I called and asked and she did. And she was great. And when the movie came out, People Magazine said, Cher, you've never done an animated movie. Why did you say yes to this one? And Cher said, I've never done an animated movie before because no one ever asked me before. So if Cher, I mean, one of those famous, iconic, talented people on earth, is sitting there, no one ever asked her. Can you imagine who you and your listeners in their life, you're not calling because you're thinking, oh, they'll never do it. They'll never say yes. They must get this question a hundred times a day. And no one had asked Cher. So that's the second thing to do. So now you're th- these things are seem crazy and outlandish, but they're not crazy and outlandish because when we called Cher, we called Cher with a great suggestion for what we thought was a great movie, which we understood the essence of and so forth and so on. So now your crazy is getting a little defined. You're not just calling for nothing. You're not just calling um, and your person and saying, oh, so how are you doing? So what's up? You know, I mean, that would be a little nuts if you call and say, listen, here's why I'm calling you. So that's what you do. And, and then the third thing is play, great ass play. And here again, it sounds a little crazy, but you think, I, I believe that in a state of play, we are much more creative and much more open to innovation. Now, that doesn't mean you're playing like a three-year-old. I, I, I think a professional uh, athlete, I think Tom Brady, when he played football, is playing, but he's certainly taking it seriously. And, and so there's just a lot of things we don't do in our in our work lives, in our daily lives, that would be fun because we think we can't do it. You know, you mentioned today is National Hot Chocolate Day. So how many people are going to take out their staffs for hot chocolate? It would take 20 minutes. Everyone have a good time. They remember it. And maybe someone will get an idea. We can do that kind of thing. We just think we can't. Mm. So within that, that's what I mean by a touch of the madness. I don't yeah, mean holding up. No, it's a, let me dive into awesome. asking, asking, asking. I mean, you, you you share with us in a pre-interview, literally the word asking, you repeated it three times. You wrote, you said asking, 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 literally everyone, everyone. Uh, and I, I think I follow where you're going with that. It, it doesn't indicate, you know, that, that's not to say that every person you run into on the street is someone that you ask a question of or that you try to bring into your orbit. But it does mean you, I believe, file have a have a mental file of the people in your orbit, and you try to think of the appropriate questions and the appropriate time. Time being defined by you, not by say what's polite, but by you understanding or seeing an opportunity, um, looking for that moment, and and then at that moment, refusing to be cowed or uh, or 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 uh, intimidated. Uh, and going for it. I mean, is that what asking, asking, asking is the way, is that how you perceive it? Yeah, pretty much. I would, I would only make two little caveats to that. One is you, you ask them for something in pursuit, in the way I describe it, of your great idea, of your creative idea, you know, create, you ask them in pursuit of me. Now that I've created, for example, the movie Bobbleheads, I got to get someone great in it. Who am I going to get? So, 
so you do that and and then who you go to i think you go to willfully and it is, i wouldn't just wait for circumstances i think you indicated you know if, if you happen to run into them make it happen it's so easy to contact people today i've been doing this since college before i was a movie producer and you know then there was literally just you know there weren't that many ways to, to find people or to contact them now you can dm people you can create them up on social media you can linkedin them there's a million ways to get to people those people to go to and i and and I think you'll find if you go to people with purpose, they're you know it's better than you think. And the downside, we think, oh my God, what if I don't know whoever you know the president of Argentina says no to me? Well, so what? Call another president. I mean, there's always something, but it's it's in pursuit of your goal. I like that. I like that. Don't be deterred, right? You just gotta you just gotta keep plodding forward. If you believe in it, then- that is that is the easiest one to do. And the hardest one that for everyone to do, and I and I suggest if you want to start, you know, embracing the madness, that's a good one to start with. Maybe you don't start with someone as famous as Cher, but maybe you call, you know, you know, Uncle Harry and ask him why he didn't come to Thanksgiving this year or any year. You just just start doing it. It's like a muscle. Yeah, it's like becomes a muscle. You just call people all the time. And I was literally just on a call with two women who made a movie I produced this year, and I keep saying, now you got to call some people to get them to you know watch the movie and give you a quote. And they want to do it, but I can, I'm, you know, I'm trying to prod that along because it's just not what we're taught. Well, Larry, you're, you're talking to a person who, um, I once actually called the president in the white house, uh, when I was young. So I told president President Carter. So Did did he respond? No. So I was nine and he was on TV talking about the salt two talks. I don't know if you remember the salt two talks, um, and which was about nuclear proliferation. And I had this great idea in my head about how we can not have so many deaths in war and have, you know, people actually dying. I thought that if everyone wore their respective country's helmet and a white t-shirt and you ran around with fantastic bottles filled with red dye and sprayed each other, you can just, (laughs) at the end of the day, tabulate. Like, oh, okay, he got hit in the chest, he must be dead. He got hit in the arm, he's hurt. And so, you know, in my own mind, I kind of invented paintball before it was ever a thing. But <laughs> I, I called, I called the president. I was just going to say that sounds like a lot like paintball. Yeah, okay. yeah. And but this is like nineteen whatever seventy eight, seventy seven, somewhere around there. So um, I had called him, and I got. It took me an hour to get through to the White House. I, I spoke to literally like a dozen Secret Service agents. And I finally got to the to the hotel, the White House operator, and I'm like, "Well, I'd like to talk to the president, please." And she was like, "Well, he's on, he's on TV. It's live." I was like, "Oh, <laughs> <laughs> didn't understand the whole live part." Um, so I get I get what you're saying about I, I've always been a big believer about when you have a chance, you have to take it, right? Like if, if there is a person that you've always wanted to talk to, and by the way, Cher's never answered any of my calls. When, the, when there's a person there that you really want to talk to and you feel like, you know, oh, that's a famous person or that's a person who I believe I can partner with to move forward with my dreams or whatever the case may be, you only have that one shot, really, right? Because you don't know when it's going to come back again. So yeah, take it. You, you, have to, you, have, you have to make your you own create chances. your own shots, I think. Yeah, I, yeah, I think, yeah, I I think what I'm hearing out of Larry is, no, you don't have one shot. You create right. your own shots. And mm. uh, and, and I, I, I get that. I, I Look, I think there's a fine line. Obviously, if you start randomly calling people with random ideas that are not good ideas, uh, that's more crazy than, you know, uh, than I think. What no, we remember, Mike. Yeah, exactly. It is I about... Hear- yeah, you, you call them, pursue your 
idea. You call them with a purpose, you know, because because otherwise you will just be, you know, just chatting and wasting time. And the purpose could be, look, I think what you did as a nine-year-old kid was great. I hope your parents, did your parents encourage you and say, good, call, 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 now call your senator. I mean, that's, that is madness. You, you, you do have the madness. That's great. <laughs> no, my mom didn't believe me until she got the phone bill and she saw all the calls, <laughs> to, the, calls to the, you know, I, Washington. I think that's fantastic. Well, I think it's you. great. Thank you. That. Well, so I think it's great too. And obviously someone else got to him first and that's how paintball was invented. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know <laughs> what I, on, on to my next crazy idea. So you had told us though, in the, in the pre-interview that nothing great happens without taking a chance, which is exactly right. what we're talking about here. And you also emphasized about never giving up uh, your belief in that. Right. And I, you know, you've had, Unbelie- and th- first of all, thank you for making movies like Platoon and Dirty Dancing and and True Lies and all those hugely impactful in my life. Uh, and I know millions of others. Um, very fond feelings of of uh, of you know watching those movies and, and being entirely and grossly entertained. It was wonderful. Um, but I'm sure that not all of your endeavors came out like that. Um, wanted to know if maybe you'd be okay talking about a movie that didn't knock it out of the park, uh, either critically or, or box office wise, um, where you took a chance and you didn't give up, but it didn't pan out. And what did you, what have you learned from that? I, I, I know one, you know, one that I thought was pretty good, but was food fight. I thought that was a good one, but, uh, you know, how about, how about that experience living through that? And what did you take away from that? Well, Food Fight, it was an anim- one of the first animated movies we did. And um, we are under an NDA, so we're literally not supposed to talk about Food Fight. Oh, Because sorry. there was a settlement on Food Fight, so I'm, I'm not supposed to talk about no, it. Some but other movie. Food Fight, was a, Food Fight was a movie that a lot of crazy things happens on it, suffice to say. And and when the when the um, uh, the crash of 2008, or whatever it was, 2008, 2009 happened, it was the death knell of Food Fight. And it just, I mean, that's what happened to us during that period. A lot of people lost movies, people lost it. We, we lost that. And so, but a lot of other, I mean, this, the food fight in and of itself, I just we can't talk about it. It's a crazy long story. So, so what did we learn? Well, here's what happened. This is a good example. So after food fight, so we had started this animated movie and it never got finished. And so I thought, well, we are, I still want to make animated movies. And I thought, well, can I go sell one animated movie? I mean, but will the, will what happened in Food Fight, which, as I said, was really the financial crisis, hurt us or not? I thought, wait a minute, you know what I should do? Instead of trying to sell one animated movie after Food Fight, I'm going to go bigger. I'm going to sell 12. And that's what I did. I, I put together a slate of 12 movies. And, um, and I went. And I sold it. And I thought, well, rather than say, oh, no, I, the, the, our, movie never, our first animated movie never got finished. Hell with that. Let's let's go bigger. And so I sold a slate. And the people who bought the slate said, you know what we like about you? We like that your first movie didn't work out because you know, you know how to you know how to deal in a situation like that now. Mm. So and and then animation that that started our animation studio, which has since made, I don't know, somewhere between 25 and 50 projects. So you just gotta get up and go again. You know, again, if you're if you're a boxer and you get hitting around, you don't go, oh my god, I got hit around. You just you just you it, it, it it's gone. The moment's gone. It, it's so easy. You know, the, the reason I don't talk too much about movies that didn't work, and there's a lot of them, is because it's very easy to Monday morning quarterback. But they're done. They're over. And now is the next one. And if I if I had wallowed in, oh, how come Food Fight never got finished? I, I wouldn't have made the, the, all those dozens of animated projects I made. And we're about to start a new animated movie. And so, no, you just got to keep moving forward. And I believe 
a good example of what I call a touch of the madness is when the world tells you to be conservative and go smaller, do the opposite and go bigger. So, so let's talk about what you just said in the context of never giving up, because I don't think never giving up is literally, no matter what you do, you just stick with something, even if you know it's a dud or it's proving out to not be what you thought it would be. I think never giving up is broader than that. It's more global than that. I mean, is your view of never giving up, never giving up on your big dreams, or does it literally mean if you're on a project, you just see it through no matter what? I think that notion of, you know, when do you hold them, when do you fold them is, again, everyone's to make. I, I probably am not the best at, at folding them quick enough in certain cases. But I do think what you said is true. I think it's a global view. So like what I had to say, I, I at one point I had a decision in Foo Fight. Do I settle with everybody because there was a lot going on and move on? And my my then my question becomes to me, well, is my goal to make great animated movies and TV shows and theme park rides or is my goal to make this one movie? And I said, no, my goal is to make great ones. And what's going to get me there quickest? What's going to get me there quickest is a, is a new slate of 12 movies, which included the first ever feature length Lego movie, by the way, versus that. So, so you have to define what you're giving up on. Is it the one project or the idea of this category? And I, I, the point is to not let, you know, we do a lot of martial arts stuff because of Mortal Kombat and it's a great expression in fighting. It, it, the mark of a champion is not how you punch, but how you take a punch. So you get up again and you go make it again. But yeah, I, I, I think there's a point in which sometimes you have to just call it. Although, as I said, I'm not great at doing that. But then I didn't call it. I said, you know what? My goal is to make animated movies and I'm going to sell 12 of them. And that's what we did. Very cool. Very, very cool. So you're, let's talk about, let's talk about this book that you've put out that's, uh, available everywhere and full of so many great tidbits. Your, your current focus on your new book is about leveraging new technology for global movies. So what does that mean <laughs> for us, for us lay people, not in Hollywood and what, well, so that, that, well, go ahead. No, I was gonna say, and, and, and what challenges and opportunities do you see in an initiative that targets such a diverse audience? I think the future of the movie business is globalization and technology enables it to happen. So for the time that the movie business has existed, for those of us in the West, we've made 90 plus percent of our money from North and South America, Western Europe, South Korea, and Japan. That's 20% of the world by population. That means 80% of the world, over 5 billion people, we have not really seen our movies and we really haven't been able to... Um, benefit from those people. And the reason is distribution was hard, not a lot of movie theaters, hard, hard to get to them. People don't like watching dubbed movies. Um, if you make movies for people around the world, you have to have a mixed crew, which is really true diversity of people from around the world. That was never really possible until now. Technology allows you via technology, the same technology that propels streaming to distribute movies either on streaming or video on demand in Africa, in Indonesia, in all these places that are huge in terms of population growth. And even disposable income, they just don't have a lot of movie infrastructure. So we can distribute to them now, which we couldn't before. Um, dubbed movies, there's new AI technology, which enables the computer to change your lip movements to whatever language you're being dubbed into with no in, in perfectly. So you'll never watch a quote dubbed movie again. And finally, um, we work with NVIDIA and Microsoft on uh, in the last few years during the pandemic to build a worldwide production pipeline. So we have people from all over the world working on our movies, which is what I really call true diversity because it has nothing to do with the color of their skin. It just means culturally we're imbuing into all these projects, the culture of the world. And in what's happened to make up for that in the past is you had a movie, if it's good, you show it in English. 
Then you make a new version of it in Hindi, and then you make a new version of it in Mandarin, and on and on and on. Why not just make one version of it? You'd make a fortune. And I think that's the future. So that's what I'm now um, betting on again. And rather than just coasting and playing it safe, I'm embarking on raising a lot of money to make movies that I think will appeal to people all over the world. And in doing so, I found these great stories that are all over the world that are just hiding in plain sight that we don't maybe know. Maybe they're known locally, but I believe they should be known globally. So that's that's my focus now. So, I mean, culture, I mean, the, the reality of uh, of the movie-making industry may be different than um, other genres because, let's face it, one thing we've exported in the, out of the West has been our culture through movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we're going to try to do this in reverse, so if we're going to try to essentially, if you will, the 80% of the world who's, uh, whose stories have not been told or not been told well or not be told enough, uh, is your view that you're going to bring those stories to a westernized audience or you're going to try to create stories that cross lines? Uh, and and how do you do so that? I'm not, Ultimately, it, yeah. Well, so, so it's a great question. So first of all, not too long ago, uh, a, a U.S.-made movie, a good U.S.-made movie, like an action movie like I do, made 70% of its its money from the United States. Today, that movie will make 25% of its money for the United States. So the influence of Hollywood movies on the world market has gone down. So my, no, no, my, my impression is that now everyone's going to go watch an Indian movie or a Chinese movie. There's never been an Indian movie that's a hit in the United States. There's only been two Chinese movies that are hits in the United States. I'm not trying to now just simply reverse the trend. I'm trying to make movies that work for everybody. And even the influence of those Hollywood movies did not make it to these countries you're talking about in any broad way. There was just really no way for it to, to do so. I mean, I spent a lot of time in China, which I think is a huge market. We're going to do a movie there. But a lot of movies that you so kindly said nice things about, they never heard about. I mean, they did True Lies. It was the first Western movie that was a hit in China. But they just didn't, those cultural barriers were, were changed. So even the movies you you might think of ours that work well, they tend to work well in the places we talk about, you know, Western Europe and and Japan and and things like that. So no, I believe we can make world movies for the world market. And I do believe there are genres that just appeal. Everyone likes action. Everyone likes romance. Everyone likes treasure. Animated family movies do well. You know, political movies, uh, comedies tend to be very culturally based. Um, uh, uh, Some things like that don't work as well. I just believe that all these places are coming on board. Filmmaking is getting better. And if we can make one movie each time for the whole world, as opposed to chunks of it and different versions of it, we I think we'd make so much more money. And I also think the storytelling would be much more interesting. I think I think the world is going to be a smaller and smaller place, and we should make movies that work for the for all, the whole all audiences. And now again, remember, think about it. You go see a movie, turn on a movie tonight, no matter what most of us say. Oh yes, I love French movies. You really don't want to watch dub movies, but now you won't. They won't look dubbed anymore. That's a huge change. And it's coming. It's yeah, virtually interesting. Here. I mean, I, I do enjoy foreign movies and I watch them, of course, with subtitles. I don't like dubbing. I've never liked dubbing. Uh, there, there is, I think, a great deal of value, what you're saying. I haven't, I don't think I've seen a movie where uh, the dubbing was done so well that uh, the language, the, the fact that it was recorded in one language and spoken in another was not obvious. I'm looking forward to seeing that. That does sound quite intriguing. Uh, I, I'm thinking of something else that you know has come up in 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 other episodes of ours. We've had best-selling authors, uh, including the rom-com author uh, Kara Lockwood, who happens to be 
married to PJ Benoit. Uh, she's a best-selling author of 35 books, been translated to uh, five languages. And one interesting thing about the genre that she's done most of her writing in, which is you know known as quote-unquote chick lit, uh, is that it's on some level formulaic. Uh, and one of the challenges, I think, that I am beginning to see the movie-making business transcend is the challenge of just telling the same old story. Uh, uh, the guy who's, you know, resistant and the the gal that loves him. And, you know, those movies are tired. And uh, the dialogue in them is not credible, not believable. Uh, and, and I think that part of the reason that some of those uh, movies have not done well is because people are tired of seeing the same old. And I think what I'm hearing you say is it's time to tell different stories differently. Uh, and that the audience would respond to that. And and as someone who loves movies, loves them, and it, it's a huge passion of mine, I do think that what I've seen of late, some of the movies that I've really, really loved, or even some of the television series that I've really loved of late, the, the quality throughout, the dialogue, the 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 degree of um, a story that resonated and seemed real to me is exponentially greater than I would say 15 years ago. Do you see that the same way? Do you see that the movie making? No, I, I, I'm curious. I'm curious to hear about what movies you think do that. No, I, I think it's been the opposite. I, I think we had two double whammies in the movie business the last five years. One was, of course, the pandemic. But the other was we've had a politically correct movement that whatever your politics are, it was really akin to what happened in the 50s. If your listeners don't know, in the 50s in the United States, there was a government commission that oversaw movies. And everyone was accused of being a communist. And if you said the wrong thing, you were blacklisted and canceled and you couldn't work. And essentially, we've gone through the same thing. And it's very hard to make art that way. So the reason I feel it has happened and still happens that there's a lot of repetition and so forth is because that's why I wrote the book. No one wants to take a chance. But not again, nothing great happens without taking a chance, especially in movies. And look at some of the movies I've been involved in or anyone's been involved in that are largely great. You'll say, well, that's different. That hasn't happened before. Platoon never happened before. Mortal Kombat never happened before. So these movies were different. And I, But then I agree with you that a lot of great stories are found all over the world. I mean, I, I you know, in the, in the summer, I, I went, I, we're going to do a movie that goes from, it goes from um, goes from the Middle East all the way across the Silk Road to China. These locations are stunning and they're amazing and they're beautiful. And no one in the West has shot there. So I'm, we're going to, but no one has. Yeah. So I, I I think you have to break that mold of political correctness because you can't make movies under censorship. I'm curious to hear some of the movies you think have really broken that mold. That's it's a really good point. And you know what? I I think you're. And that's a point not to be missed. There's so much content. There's so much content out there now, and obviously, I, I only consume the content that resonates with me. Uh, I mean, I'm thinking of a movie I just saw, "Leave the World Behind," the new Julia Roberts and Ethan Hawke movie, uh, which I thought was was done well. Um, that's great. You know, there's that's a great. lot about that movie that I thought was was quite good. Uh, you know, I'd have cool. to. I, I, Any time you put me on the spot and ask me to name names, I, I'll have to get back to you, <laughs> yeah. but. I, I've seen some wonderful shows uh, in 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 wonderful movies, and, and they resonated. They with are me, probably because they, are they stood out. Yeah, there are incredibly talented filmmakers all over the, here and all over the world. Sometimes the political situation or fear gets in the way of what they can do, and we are trying to change that. And I think that will crack like it cracked in the fifties when you know the advent of sixties and late sixties came in. So I, I think it'll crack, but you can't. Again, that's, I, that is why I wrote A Touch of the Madness, because I want to encourage people to be their creative selves and take shots and things that didn't happen. If you look at the United States in the late 60s and early 70s, 
which was after all that 50s, early 60s conservatism, that was the heyday of filmmaking. I mean, all these incredible movies, Raging Bull, Easy Rider, Godfather, that's when they all got made. Because all of a sudden it was like, well, there's no more. You can't make great movies under um, creativity, but I mean, under censorship. But I do believe there are so many talented people all over the world and so many great stories that we haven't seen. And so it does a bunch of things. So including the business points I made, um, Tal, as you just said, it offers stories that we're not that familiar with and actors we're not that familiar with too, which I think we should be. Yeah. And, and in writing, uh, Tal, just to, to bring this a little bit around from the formulaic standpoint, you mentioned that sometimes it can be formulaic. Uh, I have known or have learned s- since being married to a bestseller uh, who one of her mo- movies was made into, uh, sorry, one of her books was made into a movie on Lifetime um, is that there are certain tropes, especially in romance. There's a lot of tropes out there and those tropes are what the readers actually love because it is a comfortable place to learn new stories of within the confines of understanding that they already have. You know, you know what I mean? Like they know the story is going to go a certain way or whatever. And, and that's, that's what they're looking for. So that's why sometimes, especially in rom-com things can seem a little formulaic. Yeah, for sure. I, and I, I, I'm trying to think of, I'm scratching my, my, my brain trying to, or picking my brain, trying to come up with uh, a couple of the movies that I, I, I thought. But see, I, I would, I would, I mean, every no one likes to be put on the spot. So I'm sorry for doing yeah. that, but I would argue no. that that's exactly what's going on. You, you should see a movie and not forget it. We all should, but I do the same thing. I, sometimes I forget what I, I watch a movie every night. Cause I'm always looking for directors and actors. And sometimes the next morning, if I don't write it down, I forget it. And it's my job. Mm. We shouldn't. And, and, and I, and I think, that again is what I mean by a touch of the madness, not doing something, you know, insane, but saying, well, why don't we try take a risk? Why don't we do something that hasn't been done before? Let's see. Because if we watch, as I said, most of what we consider to be the great movies throughout history, someone took a risk. Yeah, 10 4. Well, you know what? Here's here's one party to your life that probably has watched as many movies as you or over the years. It's probably multiple parties. And you told us that one of your greatest professional achievements is that you've brought your dog or dogs, I would imagine, works with you, work with you for 25 years. And so my question to you is this, uh, and I need you to answer it honestly. Who have you loved more, your dogs or your most popular movies? And and I need you to explain why the answer is clearly your dogs. <laughs> as 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 we're as we're doing this, I'm trying to casually reach over because my, my dog has come and jumped up on the couch next to me because he's, you know, he starts begging for lunch about 50 minutes before lunch. I'm trying to calm him down so you don't hear him. So who have I loved more? <laughs> of course, my dogs. They're my best friends. I love dogs. I love animals. They're my best, 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 best friend. I just think they're great. And you know what? And we talk about, you know, kind of as we talk about sort of, you know, play at work. Dog comes in and says, we're going for a walk now. He's like, oh, I can't. I, the first reaction is I don't, I don't possibly have time. And then I stop and I Yes, I do. I have 10 minutes to take my dog for a walk. What's going to happen? And I find when I do that and I come back and now I have to call back that agent, it's not such a big deal. So not only are they great friends, but that sense of play that they instill actually does, I think, help tremendously in life because it makes you more uh, mindful. I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, my dog is my shadow. Uh, literally goes everywhere with me. I, I, I have a mini Australian shepherd, a nine-year-old. Zeke, who's uh, always right here at my feet. Um, as he, he always is. And I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. There's something about your dog and the simplicity of uh, what matters to them that uh, is grounding. 
So uh, yeah, I, I as I as I think about it, and I've had you know some some great career moments, and and I've had dogs I've loved, and I would say my dogs stand out as as having had more of an impact sure. on me uh, than <laughs> my great career moments. So there's that. So our guest today uh, was uh, Larry Kazanoff. Uh, he has produced some of the greatest movies uh, in the history of movie making, I would say, and uh, he has a wonderful new book. Uh, a touch of the madness, how to be more innovative and work in life by being a little crazy, which you can find everywhere and anywhere. I'd like to call our audience. If you've seen great movies uh, over the last year or two, go ahead and email us uh, through our website, www.bravingbusiness.com. If you have a a good movie or a good actor that you think uh, Larry should hear about, uh, let us know and we'll pass that on. Larry, it's been a great honor, a great privilege. We'll do Thank that. You. Yeah, please. Do. I'd love to hear who your audience likes. That'd be very helpful. Thank you. Thanks, guys. It's been a real pleasure. And Larry, just it's real quick, if you're, if you're ever looking for a um, middle-aged, overweight, sex symbol leading man, I'm here for you, kind sir. <laughs> My prayers are answered. See, I told you. <laughs> guys. And that's a wrap, folks. Like what you heard? Want to support the show? Please follow our page on LinkedIn and Facebook. Visit us on YouTube and please like and rate us on all of your favorite podcast streaming services. You can also see exclusive content, subscribe for free to our weekly blog, support our sponsors, and soon buy our merchandise at www.bravingbusiness.com. Thanks for being a part of our production, and we'll see you next time on the Braving Business Podcast. 